Welcome. Welcome to Influence Church. Um, it's good to have my friend Masab with us. Would you give him an influence welcome, please? Thank you. In the uh, first service, I mentioned that this is our third interview, but I forgot about one we did in Hollywood at L.A. God and a ministry we have in Hollywood. And I forgot you came to our first meeting of L.A. God with uh, all the uh, people in the, in the industry. And so this is our fourth. Wow. We're kind of, we ought to go on the road together or something. <laughs> but Masab has been a, a friend for uh, several years, and um, it's, I'm proud to call him a friend. And I'm just glad that he is here with us today and uh, going to share with us a bit of his story. Uh, one of the things that um, I really appreciated in the book was um, reading the book for the first time. It gave me a different perspective. You know, living in America, watching the news that we watch, everything is filtered and we're told what, we, what they want us to hear see what they want, we see what they want us to see. And it's really, to get into another culture, you have to have a cultural informant. You have to have someone who can give you some insight into that culture, into that world. And typically, you know, news stations aren't the best to do that. Um, but I think that one of the things that I appreciate about Masab is he helps us to understand a bit of what it's like to grow up in a culture that's different, that we read about, we hear about, but we don't fully really understand or comprehend unless you grew up in that culture, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So one of the things I, I want to do is, um, is really just let him kind of give us that, those early days. What's it like to grow up and to experience what he experienced, for your father to be who your father was, and just kind of bring us up to maybe 18 years old. And, and if you were here in the first service, I guarantee you this will be different, okay? But there's some things we need to lay some foundation on so that everyone gets a taste of what we're talking about. So, up. give us the early years. What was that like? I try to remember. Good morning, everyone. I'm assuming it's still morning. I feel more awake than the first service. That's a good thing. Um, I grew up for a Muslim conservative uh, family. My father was one of the founders of Hamas movement. Um, at the age of 10, nine or 10, we moved next to uh, the cemetery of our town. And from very early age, I maintained going to the mosque five times a day, even if it was at 4 a.m. in the morning. Um, sometimes it was freezing. We did not have hot water. I had to uh, purify myself with very cold, freezing water. Um, and sometimes my father would see me sleeping and he would let me still sleep and go to the mosque. I wake up, where is he? My mom would say, he's already at the mosque. And I ran after him. It was very dark, there was no lights. And a bunch of uh, homeless dogs uh, attacked me. I remember I was probably five or six, no more than seven at that time. This is how much I was uh, trying to uh, convince myself that this is the path and I wanted to meet with the highest standards or expectations of my parents. Living next to the cemetery, going to the mosque on daily basis, looking at the graves, and I mean, my perception of it was really scary. I was very scared of that place. And one day, after the prayer in the mosque, I look and I see a corpse. And this is the first time I see a dead body. Now, I asked, what is this? They said, this man died and uh, we pray for him and we bury him afterwards. Now, I'm looking at the thing, trying to see if it breathes, if it moves. My first observation of a dead human being. 
it didn't move. Afterwards, some men came and they carried the body and they rushed to the cemetery. There were no kids. Actually, at that time, not many people went to the mosque. They only went to the mosque for special occasions, like a funeral or things like this. Now, because I'm coming from a very conservative family, my father established Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood. They started the Islamic Revolution. At that time, Hamas was weak and persecuted. So to like, for the society to find a kid at the mosque, at a funeral, that was rare. And his name is Musab. I was probably the only person in that town with that name. My father was very inspired by the Islamic first ambassador. Um, and this is why he named me Musab. So anyway, they're carrying the body. They take it to the cemetery. I had the courage now to go with everybody. They start putting the body down. They uncovered the face, made him face Mecca. And they start putting dirt. Now the Imam start preaching as the rest of the Muslim Imams. They preach and their tool is intimidation. This is how Allah makes everybody his follower. Intimidation. Now, what the Imam was saying was very scary. He said, once we finish with this, when his family is gone, his friends is gone, and everybody is not here anymore, two angels will come from heaven, and they will bring his soul back. They will awaken him, and they will start investigating him. Who's your God? Who is your prophet? If he doesn't know the answers, he would be tortured. And he started to talk about a snake of 99 heads and a scorpion the size of a camel. I was like, oh my God, I never felt good about this cemetery. All this torture was taking place just next door. I knew it. I was only nine and now try to imagine, look through the lens of a child. I believed what he said. I went home and now I have a big problem in my head to solve. It takes lots of courage because I had to go on my own where nobody is there to guarantee that the angels will be doing the torture thing and go and listen. Now, for me, that was real. It was very hard to make it to the cemetery. None of my friends would go with me. And finally, I made it there. When I got closer to the grave, I thought that this is it. I'm going to be done. By the time I got there, I started to get myself back, breathing back, and nothing happened. I'm not hearing anything. I got closer. I put my ear on the ground, trying to hear anything for hours. Nothing happened. I went back home. I was very disappointed. I told my mother the story, and she started yelling at me. She did not understand how much effort I put into this. <laughs> I put my life on the line, you know, to know the truth. And uh, I started crying because as she was disappointed that I don't behave myself and I do crazy things all the time, I was also disappointed that I did not get a result and I did not get appreciation. So anyway, when she saw me crying, she told me, listen, only animals can hear the torture. Humans don't get to hear it. And I believed her as well. I choose to tell you this story to describe my environment. A society lives many lies, many illusions. They live in delusion. And the ones who get a chance to see the truth or a higher truth, they don't have the courage to stand for their truths. 
This is the situation in the Middle East. This is the situation in the Islamic culture. If you try to face and challenge the current, what the mob believes or believe, you're going to be crushed. Um, my father had very high expectations from me. Again, he was persecuted for his cause. You know, he has his own community. He traveled thousands of villages, refugee camps, cities, everywhere. And I was with him most of the time. Preaching Islam, bringing Islam back to life when Islam was dead. Islam basically is my family's business and project. As a family, we paid very high price. My father was arrested nearly 20 times for the cause of Islam, Hamas, and his movement. And by the way, he believes in what he's doing. His environment shaped him and conditioned him in that way. His truth is superior to your truth. In his own misperception of truth, this is what he acts, this is what he does. He does not care for higher truths. And he does not care about your perception of him. This is why he stands strong till today. Now, there is the other part to the story, besides this cultural, ideological dimension of shaping uh, a person's mind, which is the Israeli occupation. You know, Israel controlled the lands in 1967 when the Arab countries tried to destroy the state of Israel. So they took over the West Bank, Sinai, Golan Heights, and other parts. And that was a result of the war. Now, I grew up and I was born in the West Bank. And Israel took this land to defend itself from future attacks from Arab and Muslim countries and still control those territories uh, for this purpose, defense. But you know, growing up in that environment, everybody uh, was telling us a different truth, was telling us that Israel is taking our land, is Israel is controlling uh, our destiny, they want to destroy us, they want to kill us. So there is lots of political propaganda out there. And when you live in a culture that there is no separation between church and state, or let's say mosque and state, uh, things get messed up. And it's very easy to sell a lie to someone. But in my case, I grew up in a family where my father is a leader. He's one of the 10 top leaders of the country. And he's a parliament member as well. And we learned how to be leaders, not how to be soldiers even though he wanted us to be soldiers. And we, I was uh, disciplined by the Islamic teachings, uh, by the Hamas movement, by many other things in life. As I, I told you, you know, at 4 a.m. you would find me waking up, facing the cold weather, going to the mosque no matter what. Fasting Ramadan, 30 days, at a very young age. Sometimes I broke my, my fast, I cheated. But, so anyway, this is what we are prepared. Then when I came to see a higher truth, a different reality, and to see deception, I had to search farther. And as you will see, my journey, as it took me to the grave at nine years old, it took me to very difficult and dangerous uh, places, uh, and it's still taken me. And that ideology, religion, uh, took you at age 17, 18 to decide to seek revenge, to retaliate, and you were arrested uh, by um, the IDF. Tell us a little bit about that experience. What was going through your mind? What and how you processed through that into then um, actually being incarcerated? Yes. Um I had ideological reasons, political, 
religious and national reasons to hate the state of Israel. At a very young age, they arrested my father. They promised that they would return him in five minutes. And they took him for a year and a half. I had to take responsibility for my family at the age of 10. And I had to witness the suffering of my mother. And we are a big family, five brothers and three sisters. And uh, my mother had to face uh, the uh, judgment of the society. Though she was uh, managing an impossible situation. And this uh, brought me to ask many truths about also our society, by the way. But the point is, growing up there, there is no way for you not to hate the state of Israel, not to hate the Western model. Because the lies in the mosque, the lies on the street, even in the schools, whether if it was a United Nations school or just a Hamas school, you come to the same conclusion that Israel is the enemy. And everybody prays the fighters who fight against the state of Israel. Whether if it was religious or national reasons, the majority of people agree in the Middle East that Israel is the enemy and should be destroyed and uprooted from the region. With that said, fighting against Israel is the most important mission any individual can do in the Middle East, especially the Palestinian territories. And at the age of 17, I purchased guns. At the age of 18, which was a few weeks after, I was arrested before I did anything, thankfully. Um, during the interrogation, the Israeli intelligence offered me to work for them. And I agreed, motivated by revenge. I thought this is my opportunity to take revenge from the enemies of Allah, of our nation, of our family, of my own enemies who made us suffer. And I agreed to work for the Israeli intelligence, um, having really hidden agendas. Now, I thought the Israelis are going to release me, but they said you have to go to prison. Because if we release you right now, people will get suspicious of you. And they will kill you. Go to prison, spend some time, you get a good cover. After you're released, we will talk about what we can do. Now, they transferred me to prison where thousands of Hamas members were there. Hamas had uh, a mini government. They had an emir, which is like, like a prime minister kind of thing. They had ministers, and they had a security wing. The security wing's duty was to find who were collaborating with Israel and torture them, get information, and destroy the Israeli network among the Hamas movement and in the Palestinian territories. I practically had a relationship with the Israeli intelligence, but my agendas and my truth was not to betray my people, not to betray Hamas. Now, Hamas and its security wing were torturing their own members for that suspicion of collaborating with Israel without solid evidence. And that led to the death and torture of many people, hundreds, uh, were killed and tortured. Now, this is the first time I see my father's organization's real nature. What I saw from him was completely different. My perception of Hamas was based on my perception of my father, my dad. I loved him. He was humble. He was simple. He loved us. He loved my mother. And he was very nice to everybody. And I saw Hamas through his lens all the time. But here in prison, I see a different reality. I see torture, I see brutality, I saw killing. And this awakened me 
and put me face to face with this new reality, a new challenge, a new journey to the grave to seek the truth and see what is the real nature of my father's organization, which led me basically to get involved with the Israeli intelligence where I saw the real nature of my father's organization better than anywhere else. So now you find yourself starting out going to work for Hamas against Israel inside and you end up working for Israel against Hamas. But with the idea that, and I love this part of it, that you agreed to work as long as your information did not result in the death of anyone, that that was an important piece. And that piece would find its way out in your life uh, through the teachings of Jesus Christ. Um, talk to us a little bit about how that experience with the Bible how that came about and, and how that was transformational for you. Let me establish for that point, if you don't mind. Um, in our first meeting with Israeli intelligence, which, you know, um, I did not have a desire to work for, for Israel uh, from the beginning. My goal was revenge, and now I did not have the motive for revenge anymore after I saw Hamas brutality in prison. But I wanted to be respectful in my way to say no. They're very powerful also. It's not easy you know, to say yes and then walk away for this type of agencies. They're not going to let you uh, get away with it. Uh, at least it was in my mind this way. I asked them, why didn't you come to rescue the people who worked for you? How can I guarantee that it's not going to happen to me? Basically, they said none of those people who were tortured and killed worked for us. This is not how we work. We don't build networks. We don't int introduce spies to each other. So when one is caught, everyone else is caught. And that hit me. You know what that meant? Not only uh, my, my father's organization, only brutal, and uh, mindless, it's, it's the enemy and the worst enemy of our own people by torturing innocent people. I did not agree for the principle of torturing people who were collaborating with Israel rather than torturing people who were even innocent, destroying their reputation, destroying their families completely. You have no idea what happens to a person who has the reputation of collaborating with Israel in that society. Their life is over. And their children's life is over. They cannot go to schools, they cannot get married. They ca it's the worst, most shameful thing that can stain a human being in a life cycle. But anyway, now I came to, uh, to see some truth. I did not trust the Israelis, whatever they were saying. I had to go on my own journey to the cemetery and do my own experiment. But working for the most powerful, dangerous intelligence service in the world, you know, all of us know what the Israelis do, uh, what the Mossad does. Have you ever watched Munich? Um, so basically, it's not an easy thing. You cannot miss with those guys. And now here I am having a relationship with my worst enemies, but I trust them more than I trust my friends, my family, my people at home. And I didn't know actually who was my enemy anymore. And I had to search, I had to dig deeper, but this meant crossing all the red lines, transcending all my mental barriers and do the impossible. Um, and I start to learn gradually that we have our worst enemies among us. It's in our culture, it's in our religion, it's in our lifestyle, it's in the choices that we make on a daily basis, it's in the level of our consciousness, which I believe in that culture, it 
calibrates in the falsehood. It's not in the light, it's in the darkness. And now I'm talking about a culture. I'm talking about religion, I'm talking about belief system, I'm not talking about people. There are enlightened people in that region, I believe. Now, it was a state of confusion, an awkward relationship with the other, whether if I considered them at some point enemies or I considered them friends, it became awkward and suspicious. Till the moment I was introduced to Christ consciousness. I got an invitation by uh, a cab driver from the UK to come to a Bible study. And at that time I was involved with Hamas, I was involved with Israeli intelligence. Um, and this guy had no idea who I was, that my father is a top Hamas leader. And he's just coming, you know, with a innocent heart, asking me to come to a Bible study. At that time, I was already in a relationship with the Israeli intelligence. And I learned a lot from them. So I thought to myself, if I learned a lot from the Jewish people, maybe I go and learn something from the Christian people. I have nothing to lose, to add more to my uh, state of confusion. <laughs> So I went to the Bible study and uh, I was given the Bible um, for the first time. We had it in our library, but this time it was a gift and I started reading the New Testament till I came to the Sermon on the Mount of uh, the Lord when he said, love thy enemy. And that struck me because I was truly in the darkness, you know. And my mind could not analyze anymore. And uh, this is how, you know, we see the capacity of our mind, you know. It's like if you were born in that environment, what your mind would tell you to do? Would your mind tell you go and work for the enemy's intelligence service that you are not sure that probably they use you, squeeze you like a lemon, then throw you to the trash? Or if you're exposed, you get killed? Or why do you have to go against the will of your mother, for example? So your mind always will keep you in your captivity. But when there is a heart, the heart is much more superior to the mind. The mind is blind, does not see. Um, and as you see, it's like I follow the heart. Um, and there was lots of heart beyond the words of Jesus Christ. It's not the intellect. Actually, if you pay attention to the New Testament, you're gonna find that it's not about intellect, it's about simplicity. And the power of the New Testament, it's the event, the practice of Jesus Christ, what he did practically. It's not the words. If you take the words out of the con uh, context, they don't make sense. But the uh, behavior, the lifestyle is fascinating and it really struck me, I liked it. And actually, it made the God that I used to worship and wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning look like a fool. And this is how I started a new journey uh, with the uh, supreme consciousness of uh, our cosmos. So now you find yourself... Um you're working for Israeli intelligence. Now you're on this Jesus journey, which will take you a number of years um, to kind of solidify and so forth. And you're 10 years. You're 10 years into working with Shin Bet, and, and all of a sudden you find yourself, um, I'm sure, doing a lot of things. What kind of intelligence things were you involved in? Can you tell us anything about what primarily you were doing? What was, what was your, your focus with the intelligence agency? Right after I met um, Christ, the second Palestinian Intifada started. And uh, dozens of suicide bombing attacks were uh, committed 
against Israel. In the process, thousands of people died. And uh, when, in, when Jesus invited me to love my enemies, and I loved the Israelis unconditionally, and I understood the core, uh, or I came to realize his invitation. His invitation was not like you love someone because you have an interest in common. You love someone when you have nothing in common. Actually, you love someone when they don't know that you love them. Um, and that was beyond any teaching, which you know motivated me to love the Israelis unconditionally. Now, how can you love and kill at the same time? Even though I don't want to say that I personally justify, but I understand the rules of nature and the karmic law. There's action, there is reaction. Even what happens in our minds in the form of thoughts, at some point there's a reaction to that. And everybody has to deal with it. There is no escape from it. Now, the... Uh, I kind of got lost here. Um, so now, there is no way to love the Israelis and be okay with killing Palestinians. If I wanted to see through the lens of the universal consciousness, I have to see everybody equally, even though I understand that this case of this nation, of this culture, makes much more sense to my mind than the case of this culture. But through the eyes of the universal uh, consciousness, you know that those cultures basically create walls of separation. They don't create the unity that I understood from Jesus Christ uh, analogies. You know, for example, when he said, uh, our heavenly father sends a son to the evil and the good. What did he mean by that, for example? Basically, there is no separation. Uh, I saw that he was respecting cultures, but he was not cultivated by cultures. So now, for me, I understand that where I'm coming from is falsehood, and people are committing suicide bombing attacks, and they're brutal. But in the meantime, the solution is not by killing them. That's not the uh, long-term permanent solution that is going to help humanity to evolve which, you know, it was a different responsibility than uh, an agent who's just, okay, let's, this guy's sending a suicide bomber, let's kill him. That was the easiest thing to do. Which led me to tell the agency, I cannot take a place in killing human beings. I just, it's not gonna help me continue with you guys. And basically they respected that, and we were creative. Instead of killing, we arrested them, and uh, uh, we did uh, intelligence work. And intelligence work is different than force and using uh, power. Um, for 10 years, we stopped many suicide bombing attacks. One of the times, we stopped five suicide bombers. Um, and uh, we destroyed the, the infrastructure of uh, Hamas movement in the West Bank and other terrorist organizations. Uh, thankfully, for 10 years working with the Israeli intelligence, I was not involved in any of the killing. I was once involved in an uh, assassination attempt against one of Yasser Arafat's uh, bodyguards. He was a very dangerous man, and there was no way but to kill him. Um, and uh, the operation failed. I was not uh, comfortable consciously about it. Uh, they hit him with a missile, believe it or not. He saw the missile coming. He had a chance only to open the door of the car. And when the missile, it was an anti-tank missile, when it hit the car, the explosion pu pushed him outside the car and he survived. Um, so basically that was the only event that I asked the divine to give me a permission to get involved in killing a human being and the guy escaped a missile, believe it or not. And the, and the moral of that story is drive with your doors open. 
right? Um, there are about 1.5 billion Muslims in the world, about 300 million of them uh, can speak Arabic and read the Quran, so the majority of them don't even know what's in it. And we hear a lot on our news that uh, Islam is a religion of peace. Uh, we hear it almost as if it's, uh, you know, the second line in every statement that comes out of the Middle East. True, false. Is Islam a religion of peace? Simple answer is no. Islam is not a religion of peace. And I'm not here, you know, to judge Islam or Muslims. But in times like this, when we see... Look how many terrorist organizations. Let's name them. Just the ones that we became familiar with. Islamic State recently. By the way, I recommend that we call it the Islamic State. Because it's the manifestation of the Islamic dream. Hamas, Hezbollah, Boko Haram, Hezb al-Tahrir, Muslim Brotherhood. All these just different masks for one face. It's the face of Muhammad and what he brought to this world. Muhammad was peaceful for uh, about 15 years. But the rest of his life, he was very violent. He beheaded people. For example, when you see ISIS beheading someone, why didn't they shoot him? Why didn't they execute him if they believed that he deserved to die but respect How can you respect? How can they see it? But to behead a human being, to slaughter a human being like you slaughter the goat or the sheep, you know, this is something... I cannot believe, you know, people are still silent. <laughs> Truly. I, I believe that people are completely numb. You know, they're numb by uh, political correctness. They're numb by, like, being afraid to say what's on their hearts. Um, and punch of uh, coward leaderships everywhere. Yeah. So I believe. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm courageous though. Some, uh, many times I find myself coward as well and trying to uh, be politically correct. But what I'm trying to say that this is dark. You know, this dark and humanity, Muslims, Christians, all cultures, all civilizations from the East and the West has to unify against Islam, not against Muslims. We're not trying to create a religious war here. This is very sensitive. And I hope that your perceptions of my word is mature. Muslims are just people like us. If you were born in that environment, next to the cemetery, imagine yourself, where are you going to be today? Are you going to be here or are you going to be there? Your environment will shape you and condition you in a certain way. So those are human beings just like us. They have the human condition and they basically are shaped that way. Now, for us, if we believe that we're superior to them, we don't agree to their behavior, we need to be creative sometimes we'll have to use force. And again, it's a karmic law, it's the nature. Uh, governments, this is why we have uh, armies, this is why we have intelligence services, this is why we have all type of security. To secure the future of humanity and its evolvement against a brutal enemy like this. But as individuals, out of that job, official job, we have responsibility to communicate with those people and tell them that we don't accept this. We accept them as human beings, but we reject their ideology, as we rejected the ideology of the Nazis. But unfortunately, it was too late. After 10 million people died, we don't want to witness the death of millions of people before we come to realize that this is a sick, dark ideology. Um, so this is so insightful to people who are fed baby food and it, we really are and I, I really believe that as we look uh, this whole idea you, you hear the word caliph or in Arabic khalifa the idea of um, 
of establishing an Islamic state and ahead of that Islamic state would be a caliph. And it really means successor. So when you have a caliph, he is a successor of Muhammad, and that successor would then have to, uh, would, would have the right to demand absolute obedience from all followers. So when you see what's happening in Iraq, Syria, um, what you're really seeing is, he's properly saying, it's an Islamic state. It's, it's, it's a return to the Ottoman Empire idea that you will dominate that whole area and everybody in there will be under the caliph. So what we're really seeing today is not just, you know, some bad stuff happening. We're seeing an ideology that is not ever going to be content even with from Syria to Iraq to Egypt. It is an ideology that is only content when the entire world is dominated. And that's why you hear representatives speaking and saying uh, of, of uh, ISIS saying, yes, we will fly an Islamic flag at the White House, which used to seem like a really hard thing to believe. Uh, but when one joker can jump the fence and get into the east um, wing of the White House, all things are possible, it seems, in our world. So um, I, want to, uh, I want to just, uh, we're, we're about out of time here. I'm going to take a, a, one more question, and we're going to uh, kind of close this down. Yeah, I know, you want to stay forever. Um, but... Um, so you made a decision to leave um, the intelligence agency and come to America. Uh, tell us how that all transpired and kind of what the end result is of that. For 10 years, I had to sit down on many polygraph tests. Because, you know, the, the agency believed that I knew more secrets about the agency than any other agent. Um, and, of course, they never trusted me. This is why I had to sit down like every few months on a polygraph test. I was okay with that because the sense of satisfaction that I used to have after every operation, I cannot even describe it. Um, and I was doing things for my own conscience uh, uh, evolvement rather than working for political regimes and this is, you know, after Christ came to the picture, by the way. Um, and I knew that I was um, observed by the awareness, the awareness of the universe. It's beyond the mind, beyond the uh, human consciousness itself. And it's not subjective to uh, changing. It's the same feeling from day one. I probably uh, reshaped myself mentally and physically throughout the years, but uh, that source that exists within, that is not out there, sitting on the corner of the universe and we're waiting for its coming back, I believe it's already here, it's with us. Um, Thank you for your enthusiasm. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I sat down on a polygraph test and for after 10 years, you know, Israel trusted me with the lives of troops, agents undercover, special forces, very special operations, high profile ones, uh, with the technology, with the methods, with everything. And now here I am sitting on a polygraph test and I thought that's gonna be just like the rest. I'm gonna pass and go home. And the expert comes back and he says, you failed the test. I thought he was joking. And uh, apparently he was not joking, he was serious. And actually he was not happy. He said, what was happening in your mind? I was like, nothing happened in my mind. They brought investigators and it became a big deal. Um, top leaders of the agency came down I was held in a, a basement somewhere with, uh, with guards all night long for a couple of nights. And this is the first time in the history of the agency they don't care for my cover. What am I doing in Jerusalem for two days continuously, not in touch with anyone else? Um, which was very suspicious. So I thought that this is it. No matter what happens next morning, whether they're gonna kill me, 
send me to prison, do whatever they want to do. I'm done with this job. I did what was within my ability to stop the killing. I learned a lot. I know the picture now. I know that we cannot fight a ghost, an ideology, by weapons and guns and bombs. And I was beyond the point of living in a captivity anymore. So basically, they came and they said, we decided to put you again on a polygraph test, which is you know, exceptional, by the way. Usually, you have to, uh, to give them some information, then they put you again on the test. But this time, they put me on the test without I'm giving them any information, because honestly, I had nothing. So, I go through the second test, and I pass the test. And now they said, okay, you passed the test, welcome back. I said, no, that's not, this is your reality, not my reality. I'm out of here, you have to open the borders for me, I have to leave. They said, we cannot let you go, because how many Hamas members are able to leave our borders? I said, it doesn't matter what it is, I'm done with you guys. And it was uh, a year and a half struggle against the Israeli intelligence service, which, you know, they gave me all offers in the world to stay. And I refused all of them. And they decided to uh, leave. They said, okay, go to Europe, not the United States. I said, no, I'm going to the United States of America. And I came to the United States of America on a tourist visa, just like everyone else. And I've been here <laughs> since then. Well, we're glad you're here and we're glad you chose to, uh, to come to California. Um, Masab, I just want to thank you for being with us today. It's always a joy to see you and, and to, uh, I've always appreciated your humor. It's, it's always sneaks up on you. You don't think it's coming and then it grabs you, but uh, we appreciate you so deeply. Um, would you just give him a thank you? Would you do that? Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, let's just remain standing for a moment. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to ask you, every one of you, just to examine your own heart. Would you do that? You know, probably as a Christian, if you would call yourself a Christian, you would have to say you had some moments where you had to really reflect on what your heart's really like and does love really prevail in, on the inside and does it work its way out. Jesus warned us in that same Sermon on the Mount that he referred to that if the light within you becomes darkness, how deep and dark is that darkness? So it's possible for you to have the right belief system and yet function within a world that is not characterized by light. So I'm going to challenge you as a believer, would you really let light be a part of your life? Would you let love prevail? It is the one thing that scripture says never fails, that love never fails. And we have a responsibility to our neighbors, to our friends, to love them regardless of what their perspective is, to pray for them. I'm thinking right now about three Muslim women who come to our church on a weekly basis to our prayer wall. They don't come into the service but they come to put a prayer request in our prayer wall because one of them, their children, their son has cancer. I think about that. The miracles we've seen here in healing, the testimony that we have of God's power has made its way outside this fellowship to where now people outside this faith come and say, would you pray? They're not yet ready to believe or to belong in the God we serve, but they are curious. Same reason we're starting to, to get requests worldwide. Just one, just last night from Sweden. Don't know who they are. Don't know how they heard about us, but they heard that somehow God was working to heal people and 
gave us a prayer request for someone with cancer. That's the testimony. That's what we want to be known for, that somehow God has allowed us to be the, the door for people to find the power of God. So if you're a believer, that kingdom of, of God needs to be released through you. Heaven on earth needs to become a reality for you above everything else, above everything else. If you're not a believer, hopefully you were nudged closer, if not to the point of belief today, that Jesus Christ can break through maybe one of the great barriers of our time, the barrier of a, of a son, of a founder of a terrorist organization through a taxicab driver from the UK who doesn't speak Arabic. Does it make your situation seem really difficult now? Simple. Simple for a great God whose heart is to love every one of you. And you have to let him love you. Jesus stretched out his hands and said, how much do I love you this much? Enough to die for you. For God so loved the world. Not the Western world, not the Eastern world, the world. Not the Christian, not the non-Christian world, the world. He so loved the world that he gave, he gave, he gave, he gave. He didn't take, he gave. His only begotten son. That whoever would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I want you to have that life if you don't know him. I want you to release that life if you do know him. So I'm just going to ask every one of us just to bow our heads for a moment. I'm going to lead us through a prayer for Christian and non-Christian. If you're a believer, would you just right now pray something like this? Dear Jesus, I need to release the love and the light that's within me. I need to do more than go to church. I need to be the representative of Jesus Christ on earth for everyone I meet. I need to be vocal. I need to be visible in my faith. Let people see my life and see my good deeds. And I commit today, God, to start. Start on that journey of a fresh walk with you. If you don't know him and you're not sure you know him, maybe a prayer like this would be one you would consider. Lord Jesus, I confess to you that I come short, but you are my sufficiency, you are my love, you are my grace. And I put my faith in a God who loves me put my faith in a God who died for me. So save me, Lord Jesus, and give me that gift of eternal life that I might walk in newness of life wherever I go. And I thank you in Jesus' name. 